Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for Cold Star Technologies. I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out what we can achieve together with your Lean Six Sigma or Operational Excellence programs. And check out opexsociety.org to learn more. So after Michelle Hanlon's appearance on the show, Rand Simberg reached out to me, uh, probably because he's a member of the International Institute of Space Law, so he's interested in that topic. Uh, Rand is interested in a lot of things. He describes himself as a recovering aerospace engineer, having worked with Aerospace Corporation and with Rockwell International. Uh, after that, he's been an entrepreneur and consultant in space tech and business development, and also regulatory issues, you know, especially regarding commercial and personal space flight. He was an adjunct scholar with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he's written a lot of pieces for magazines and papers you know like Popular Mechanics and uh, Washington Times and New Atlantis and even uh, Fox News. So <laughs> I like that uh, he was so well-rounded. He had a couple of really good things to talk about that we're going to get into that I have not heard other space experts discussing. And so once we broke into that, I was like, wow, <laughs> let's get you on. So Rand, welcome. All right, Rand, you are the author of a book, a space industry book called Safe is Not an Option, uh, about what's holding us back from innovation. You know, I, I saw your stat in the description that about 4% uh, of astronauts have died, and uh, while we would wish it would be zero, I actually looked up the death rate of the U.S. presidents, and it's about 17%. (laughs) It's a lot easier to die in office, uh, whether from natural causes or being shot, uh, than them being an astronaut. So tell me what made you want to write this book? Uh, This is about a decade ago. And I was very concerned that uh, NASA uh, has been risk averse forever. Uh, Not forever, but since basically since Challenger, let's say. And I kind of got used to that, but I was very concerned with the coming commercial uh vehicles that okay. that that was it's going to bleed over into the, into the commercial side and to some degree it sort of did with uh, commercial crew uh, but but it hasn't yet at least happened in terms of the people who are doing stuff purely privately uh, so i was i was trying to head that off at the pass so to speak but also just to get people also to see if we could break nasa out of that mindset okay or, or congress uh, because it, it really held us, you know, the insistence uh, of commercial crew where they, they had, a, they came up with an arbitrary loss of crew number. Uh, I think it was what, one in 270 or something like that, or one in 320, I can't remember which. Uh, but, but it was both arbitrary and unverifiable. You know, there's no, they will never know what the actual probability of dying, you know, on a crew dragon or a Starliner is because they don't, won't even fly it enough right. to, to know that. Um, but it held us back for years. We we could have been flying much sooner if they'd been willing to take more risk. And we could have not been sending Putin millions of dollars for as long as we did. And we didn't have to be dependent as long as we did. And and the, one of the points I make is that it, 
our risk aversion in space is a testament to how unimportant it is, right? Okay. If it, was really, if it was really important to get people to the moon, if it was really important to end our dependence on the Russians, it should have been, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. If it was really important, they would have said, okay, we're going to take some risk. And the astronauts would have accepted that. They did in the 60s. Yeah. Know, Neil and, and, uh, and uh, Buzz, they thought they had maybe a 50% chance of getting back. Okay, so who insists that safety be the priority then? Congress. Hmm. I mean, okay. that's, after the, uh, the penultimate shuttle launch, not the mm -hmm. last one, but the one before, uh, I think I can't remember who. I think it was Shaka Fatah. Uh, you know, complimented uh, Bolden, saying hmm. he was so happy that he was making safety the highest priority. Okay, which is stupid if you think about it. If safety is the highest priority, mm -hmm. then actually accomplishing things is a lower priority. Right, and I, I mean that sounds straightforward. We are talking about people's lives here, but I will direct those who haven't really thought too much about it back to the test pilot period when jet engines were being uh, brought out. And uh, I'll come back to this, I guess. Uh, I mean, I could ask it now. Is secrecy a requirement? Do you think we should go back to that? Because I imagine with the test pilot program, that was all shrouded under secrecy and guys went to work and nobody knew what they were working on. So if they crashed and died, uh, I, don't, I wasn't there. So I don't know if it was a news story or not when a test pilot died. Well, it's it was a news story, but it was just a news story. Okay. It wasn't something that we had national angst over. Right, you know, right. Test pilots were expected. They were, that's what they did. Yeah. And in fact, you know, when when they strapped those guys to the top of those rockets, you know, Mercury 7, that was the safest thing they'd ever done in their career. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So, so you bring up a point there. I've got this question written on my nose. We didn't get to talk too much about notes in between. So this is an interesting matchup. How do we avoid that emotional gut punch when astronauts die, right? Uh, when something explodes and and uh, we have fatalities? Well, you have you have to make it clear to the public that this is a dangerous activity. Mm -hmm. That you know these are these are national heroes, and they are not national treasures. You know, too precious to be you know risked on something as mm -hmm. hazardous as human spaceflight. Uh, you you build you build a set aside a. Huge, they have one down at Florida. They have a, an astronaut memorial, hmm. right? But you could set aside, if we were serious, you would set aside a big plot of land like Arlington. Mm -hmm. and say, this is where the people who are who are, are going to go who die opening up this frontier. Okay, if we were serious about it, that's the kind of thing we would do, and then people would would accept it. Hmm. Uh, but but they, it was. I mean, part of it was Challenger was just like the worst possible flight for that to have happened, because had mm -hmm. the teacher aboard and all the school kids were watching right so it was just a very traumatic thing and and we've been told oh this space shuttle is safe mm -hmm. you know it was just a shock that that you know the space shuttle could be destroyed in flight mm -hmm. right uh i remember and, I was... and, NASA, and nasa had been lying about it yeah. you know they, they they put forth this idea that it was it was much more reliable than it was mm -hmm. you know Feynman pointed that out mm -hmm. um because I, you know, I was working in the trenches mm -hmm. at Rockwell and Downey, and we knew, you know, it wasn't it wasn't one in ten thousand, and we knew it wasn't four nines. You know, we had a had a fault tree of all the things, you know, that could give you a bad day with that thing. Mm -hmm. 
but and you know we expected a, a an engine to blow up or something you know that was the most likely thing or or what happened with columbia you know we anticipated that you know re-entry you know might have an entry probably because you you know disrupt the integrity of the of the tiles but but challenger was such uh it was not on the fault trees nobody said we're going to have a joint open up hmm. and reclose and, and while it's open it's going to you know blow torch the strut you know to the point where it weakens it to the point where it separates and the, and the, the srb comes and crushes the upper dome of the et now, nobody anticipated that you know, it wasn't on any fault tree and if, if it had been it was it's kind of like the titanic mm -hmm. or the donner party mm -hmm. it's not just if just one thing had gone right it would have lived right mm -hmm. but it's like every everything went wrong if it had been if it had been uh pointing in a different direction so it didn't cut the the strut you know or if it had been just a little bit warmer that mm -hmm. morning Okay. Yeah. So there is kind of a learning cycle here and we have to expect that the, the absolute worst, I'm not laughing at it, but uh, the, the conditions, right. It's almost ridiculous when you think about it, that all these check marks of negativity have to happen to get to the end result. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and, it's, it's a, it's a complex, tight, tightly coupled system. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that can all, always has, can have very catastrophic failure modes. Yeah. So we can't plan for some of this stuff. Uh, and big nations have casualties. This is something that I don't think, I mean, I think back to to Lebanon and the Beirut bombing and, you know, in the 80s also. And uh, there was a lot of upset about that. And yeah, for those people and their families, it really sucked. But um, probably the message at the time was, this, you know, should have been, this is a big nation and big nations have casualties. Um and it's not fun, but we have to move on. So Here's another example I, I yeah. use from the book, uh, you know, about the fact that space isn't important. Um, from about 1948, I think 49, when they first started doing jets on carriers, mm -hmm. um, through about the mid 1980s, when they finally got it figured out, they got their their uh, <laughs> wow. their their rate they got their right. rate down, accident rate down to that of the Air Force. Hmm. Okay. So how many people do you think died in non-combat operations learning and learning that? I'm going to guess hundreds? Thousands. Thousands. Wow. Thousands of wow. deck crew and pilots. Yeah. Okay. To learn I how can to... see that. They're all out there like bowling yeah. pins. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, and, and, you know, and there are fires and, you know, just to learn how to fly jets off carriers. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing you do when something's important. Wow. Uh, I recently watched a... Uh, a talk with uh, by a former F-14 um, pilot with a rear admiral who has retired and gone on to, uh, he ran the Naval War College, one of them, and uh, is now in Nebraska. And uh, he had flown thousands of flight hours. And it's interesting, that never came up, right? He, he, he ended up commanding a, a nuclear aircraft carrier <laughs> and had all these flight hours and was a, a combat pilot for a very long time, probably longer than most of his uh commanding officers would have liked you know the guys up the chain right uh and interesting and it's just kind of yep it's fine i mean the guy was flying f4 phantoms when he started out um I, yeah and it, you know it, it you don't hear until, about yeah crashing yeah, and burning until, until the hornet and the tomcat 
Huh. We we got really got the accident rate down. They finally okay. figure out how this is how you design a carrier aircraft. Huh. And so thousands of people have died. I'm going to check these stats out, and uh, and it's it's hardly talked about, right? Or just kind of lumped right. into, well, this is this is what we have to go through to get to what we want. Um, and, and again, that's huh. non-combat. Right. 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 Okay. Okay. So this may not have been somebody off the coast of Vietnam having just flown a strike mission and coming back hmm yeah okay that's that's disturbing it's <laughs> really disturbing no, so, okay what what agencies or requirements are slowing us down as far as innovation goes here with this with this problem right of of uh holding safety as too high of a value um well i guess it's uh it, so far it's not the faa fortunately hmm. Okay. Uh, but but that but you know because there's been a moratorium on them there's we're in a learning period so-called hmm. um since 2004 when we we amended the commercial space launch act um you know faa on the space side not we're not talking about aviation we're talking about space faa asd the office of commercial space transportation has never uh done mission assurance okay they don't when they launch a, a license to launch, they don't care if the satellite gets in orbit or not. That's not their, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe they personally care, but it's not their job to worry about that. All they care about is that the rocket doesn't, you know, fall on somebody's head. Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't, doesn't hit, you know, damage an endangered species or, or a foreign national or, you know, and uninvolved third parties in general. That's all they care about. And that's been the case also with passenger, with not passenger, you know, space flight participants. We don't call them passengers. Right. Because right. that implies a level of safety that simply is not there, so they're called in the law spaceflight participants. Hmm. Uh, so up until and so they had that moratorium in place because they didn't think at the time we didn't believe at the time that we knew enough to to be able to regulate this, and that moratorium has been extended several times, and it's expiring again in October. And there's kind of a fight right now to try to get it extended again. And there's there's been kind of a push to say, no, it's time to start regulating this thing. I, I disagree uh, for two reasons. I think that's still the case that we don't know how to do it. Hmm. And B, different people have different, you know, risk tolerances. You know, suppose somebody wants to skydive from space. Mm -hmm. He wants to go up, you know, 100 kilometers and jump. Okay, that's kind of a you know risky thing to do, right? So how much are you going to? Is it probably the the rocket ride up there is much safer than what he's planning to do, right? And and people you know people people climb Everest, and about I think two mm percent -hmm. of the people who climb Everest die, right? Yeah. So so why should we insist on three nines or four nines for for a space flight? Okay. And you're going to have, and you can, you know, we can't, airlines cannot uh, compete on safety, right? You can, you can compete on how good looking are the flight attendants, you know, what kind of snacks do you provide, you know, lots of stuff, but you can't, but everybody has, has the same expectation of getting off the airplane, mm -hmm. uh, you know, safely at the end of their flight, no matter which airline it is, because that's the FAA insists on that, uh, but that we're not at that stage. The space flight. Some people, some people. So there actually will be comp competition if if, uh, 
Blue Origin wants to say, well, we're safer than than uh, Virgin Galactic because mm -hmm. uh, you know we have the support system or whatever. You know, they can do that, and people can make their choice. Say, yeah, this is a more exciting ride, but it's more dangerous. But I, well, that's my choice. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so there is a commercial yeah, value to safety. Yeah. You're saying, hmm. yeah, we're in the we're in the barnstorming yeah. era still. Yeah, 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 yeah. That if you're if you're holding on to safety as this primary value, you're restricting innovation. You're restricting the number of at bats um, that we have. Um, I don't know. I don't want to get anybody in trouble for saying something that they don't want to say. So if you don't feel like answering this next question, uh, which I'm still trying to figure out how to pose, that's okay. Uh, you say that Congress is the the biggest uh, factor upholding safety. Um, because they control the purse strings, I guess, for NASA, right? Uh, right. And that's the lever of control that they have. However, I have heard from various uh, Washington familiar venture capitalists in particular uh, that a lot of congressional assistants who are giving advice to their, their, you know, as staffers, right? They're giving advice to their masters, don't understand space and don't value space. Uh, so, I, you know, I was wondering if you have an opinion about that. Uh, and and so in that case, like, why are we letting them have that that influence, right? If they, I mean, they de facto have it, I guess, because they control the purse strings. But maybe we could get a lever in there and do something about it. Well, with uh, with rare, rare exceptions, uh, I, that's true. Hmm. I mean, yeah, Congress doesn't care about space to first order. Mm -hmm. it, it it basically it just goes along with whatever the people who get themselves on the space committees want to do and the people get them out themselves on the space committees maybe because they're interested in space but generally because they have space in their district or state yeah so so they want to steer the money yeah so it's about and employment want, yeah, um, yeah, it's bragging keeping rights the, keeping the cafeterias and parking lots full in Huntsville mm -hmm. or at the Cape mm -hmm. okay so no, nobody uh, say they're rare except Dana Rohrbacher yeah. cared about space yeah. Bob Walker cared about space Newt Gingrich cared about space, mm -hmm. but generally people on, even on the space committees, they don't care that much about space, except to the degree that uh, it benefits their constituents. Hmm. And that's really unfortunate because space is a huge national security factor. Uh, the more, the more eyes we have up there, the more ability to do something we have up there, the better. Um, we have opponents who don't have this problem. <laughs> They're, uh, and doing you know a little more aggressive i guess uh launches in that you know china's certainly been to the moon more um yeah. recently than and, we and, have right and, and china doesn't mind dropping a, a rocket on on somebody's house college. yes yeah. uh which again we're not advocating that no, no, but right. we are looking at the, like look as from a purely rationalist point of view right uh you know they are willing to do the things to get the results and safety is further down the list yeah this is, yeah. this is very true. Um, what would you say to somebody who uh, who just got hysterical about the idea of no sa safety has to be that primacy, right? That that high level, um, top level value. Is there any argument against that? Yeah, the argument <laughs> against that is if that's the highest value, you're not going to do much. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, you know, I, when I say safe is not an option, I mean that's literally true. There is no safe. You know, you know there's no safe this side of the dirt. Mm -hmm. if you're living you're risking right you could yeah you, old people fall out of bed and break their necks or you know, yeah. bones and stuff and have serious injuries I mean, and I mean, die you know, you're, yeah 
True. You're, you're gambling with every every decision you you make in life is a, is a gamble. You know, it could could end badly. You yeah. you don't know if your next breath you're accidentally pulling in some cyanide, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> just happens to be in the corner of the room over there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, yeah. probability is yeah. low, but you know, True. yeah, you, you could you can be you're not safe in bed. <laughs> I mean, mm. you know, you know, asteroid, not an asteroid, but just mm. even like a meteoroid could come mm -hmm. in and, and hit you. I mean, people have been hit by. Yeah, by, uh, it's true. By falling it's rocks. Picture of a lady with a big bruise. <laughs> yeah. Black and white. I remember that yeah, one. So, the, so there is no safe. Yeah. It's just it's a, it's a matter of risk versus reward. That's that's you know my recommendation to NASA is. Uh, they come they come up with this arbitrary number to one and two seventy. Mm -hmm. Say, and it doesn't matter what the value of the mission is. It's mm -hmm. the same number. Mm -hmm. You know, they could be doing like Columbia was doing science, kids' science fair experiments, right? Mm -hmm. But they could be going off to divert an asteroid from destroying mm -hmm. the planet. Mm -hmm. It seems like you should have a different risk level for that mission, right? Mm -hmm. You, you, you mm -hmm. might send, maybe you only got a one in 10 chance of making it. So you send an armada of 20, 20 of them. Interesting. But there's there's but there's no yeah. there's no correspondence between risk and reward. Yeah. In, when it comes yeah. In in this rating safety. system. Yeah. Safety is the highest priority. Hmm. Period. Okay. And unfortunately, the people who are insisting on that are the people who also value it the least. <laughs> safety uh space. Um, you know, and, and results in space, which I might go after them with the hey, do you realize how much this matters and how much it affects your daily life? Um, yeah. Lots of people try and tell me spaces. Why don't we deal with our problems, uh, terrestrial problems first? Well, and I say, well, do you enjoy using the GPS on your phone? <laughs> we need we need space for that. Oh, you know, oh, you use yeah. that every day, do you? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, well, you know, another example is ISS. You know, we mm -hmm. we were restricted to six crew on ISS mm -hmm. um, because they because they had to have lifeboats. They had to have enough lifeboat for six people, mm -hmm. and you have to, had the two Soyuz. Uh, that you could get six people back in, so that they they could support a seventh crew. And if you did that, you double, double the productivity, because huh. five out of the six guys, even guys, guys and gals, are are maintaining the station. There's really only about one person year uh, per huh. year of free to research do research something being performed. So if you added if you added another crew person, you would double the productivity. You'd have get twice as much done. Hmm. But they haven't done it. They can do it now because Dragon can yeah, you know, get up there in time. Can, can yeah. go, and, and, and they can, uh, so they can handle seven now. So they have, have a seven person crew now. Hmm. But for years, and, you know, suppose, you know, they had come up with some, you know, were working on some kind of drug, you know, that would save thousands of lives per mm -hmm. year. That they, they came up with something to do in, in free fall that, uh, and, but they'd be very slow to do it because they were so unproductive because they only had one person doing research. Yeah. So how many thousands huh. of lives potentially did it cost us to worry about that one, that one extra person that might get left behind if there's a problem on the station? Hmm. You know, but, you know why? You know the captain goes down with the ship, right? So why can't we have that attitude towards hmm. ISS? Okay. I, I can imagine there are people who are going to freak out in response to this kind of talk, right? Uh, you know, like, oh, we should be valuing all human life, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's just, I guess the, the argument on the other side is, look, what do you want to get out of it? And then looking at examples like we've brought up, you know, that you've brought up, um, 
of of other situations where um, human lives are not casually thrown away, but are are used much more um, yeah. riskily, right? <laughs> in, in order yeah. to get the objective of uh, passing the sound barrier correctly in a in a vehicle that will continue to do it <laughs> over and over again, right? Um, um, actually getting something that we use. Um, I know, I, I think it was Marco Cross who I had on as a guest uh, previously. We're talking about equipment manufacturers. Uh, and there's an issue right now about companies having, even having flight heritage. If you don't have flight heritage, you're kind of, you know, stalled, right? Um, and you're creeping up through the TRL levels and then you kind of get roadblocked there. Um, how do we give equipment manufacturers more of a chance to experiment and get their stuff included on flights so that they can get that flight heritage at least uh, have that check mark? Well, it's getting a lot easier because yeah. it's getting a lot cheaper. Um, yeah. I, I work with a company in Pennsylvania that mm -hmm. they, they build CubeSats. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we do is we offer, hey, they they don't uh, worry much. They don't space rate their stuff. They don't care because mm. they're so it's so cheap to build the stuff mm -hmm. and it gets obsolete pretty quickly so so they can offer say hey you got an instrument you want to fly we'll do it you know for a reasonable amount of money mm -hmm. and then it gets on a ride share and up and it, it goes on a ride share yeah. and, it, and it's uh, you know so and it's gonna that's gonna happen even more when starship is flying when things start to get really cheap mm hmm hmm there could be an impact on the clutter in space from that, though, with a whole bunch more stuff going that's, up there. So you yeah, need well, to design, yeah. hopefully design for recovery uh, somewhere. Oh, yeah. We need we need a space forge or we need something to recycle material up there. Um, that's one of those basic building blocks for orbital construction that I'm very keen on. We need an orbital construction platform and a space forge and a sort of cycle of gathering resources and bringing them there and then having a platform to hang things off of and build something. And then maybe we'll actually get a space economy here. But before we do that, I think we do need to go through a clutter phase of, uh, of more stuff, right? Um, being tested. Yeah. And, 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 you know, these, these large constellations are, they are going to be a potential problem. Uh, yeah. You know, and we'll, we'll seeing. come back to that in, uh, in our third topic. Um, so folks keep listening because there's something I had a, I had a talk with Ran here, I think a week ago, and it was really informative. Um, and that's, that's why we're jumping on to talk about these topics um, because he brought up a couple of things that I really hadn't thought of. And, and the next one here uh, after safe is not an option. The book is building codes <laughs> for orbital facilities. So cislunar um, beyond earth orbit and earth orbit and uh, and I you know I'm a compliance guy. I'm an operations management guy. I'm a logistics and supply chain guy. I'm very interested in the order in which things are done, right? And then what standards are we uh, are we holding them to? And who came up with this stuff? Because there's also a, a big part of me that's anytime somebody asserts something, the very first thing I'm going to think is, well, what's your proof? Right? Where who said that? Where'd that come from? Right? And so having somebody just give a number like like NASA did there or give a statement or a standard, I'm going to question it and go, well, where did that come from, right? And then if they have a good reasoning behind it, then I'll accept it and work with it. Uh, but sometimes you just have to take those constraints and work within them. So 
I had not thought of building codes for these orbital facilities before you brought the topic up. And uh, and it kind of appalled me. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, there's all these other rules and regulations, right? And I guess the reason is we just haven't had an, uh, operators doing anything like this. Well, nobody's built a space station except governments mm -hmm. today. Right. So, so what what codes exist? Are there any? Not really. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like uh, the other day, the ASAP, you know, Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, mm -hmm. um, the other week, other month, sometime this year, said something about these uh, commercial LEO destinations, CLDs. That's what they're calling these mm -hmm. new these new uh, space stations, these Fancy. space stations, CLDs, uh, a TLA. You, know. you got to have an acronym for everything. You got yeah. to have the TLA there, <laughs> three-letter acronym, um, which is recursive, obviously. Yeah. Um, but they said, we don't, you know, we don't know how are we going to human rate these things. And I said, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> I mean, hum one of the points I make in the book is that human rating is is a phrase that we should purge from our vocabulary. Yeah. It's it's a, it's it's because nobody, very few people, even know what it means, but they throw it around as though they think because they make mm -hmm. them think they think it makes them sound smart and like they know what they're talking about. Oh, it has to be human rated. But uh, you know, shuttle was never human rated. Mm -hmm. People don't people don't realize that, mm -hmm. but it wasn't because it had no, it did not have zero zero abort capability. So and that that's a so let's rating. define those terms then. Yeah. Well, so what I say again, let's not talk about human rated, just talk about what's the risk, what's the reward, what's the mm -hmm. probability of loss of crew. There is no right number, mm -hmm. but you have to decide. NASA says, well, there's a right number. We came up with two one and two seven. No, there is no it depends on what you're doing, right? Um, so same thing with, with human rating. No, no there, you don't human rate a space station. It's, you know, water is potable, right? We don't say this water is human rated. No, it's potable. You can drink mm -hmm. it. Okay. So this facility is habitable. You can live in it. Okay. But are the risks of living in it? Well, mm -hmm. you have to analyze that, you know, what can go wrong. Yeah. But, but, you know, but it's designed for people to live in, you know, it's got air, it's got thermal control it's got you know it's it's habitable and that's all we really need mm -hmm. so so the issue is that about a year ago year and a half ago nasa nasa has been giving it was gave money to several companies to so axiom and orbital reef and, and others too uh it was kind of based on the commercial crew model you know we'll, we'll give you money to meet mm -hmm. milestones and then you know you'll satisfy our requirements and then we'll we'll use your space station uh, but that commercial crew is actually kind of a bad precedent, and I don't think we want mm -hmm. to carry it forward. Where where NASA actually certified oh, yeah. the vehicle, right? Okay, so because now NASA is talking about certifying these space stations, and that's we don't want that. Mm -hmm. There 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 are reasons. There are lots. There are at least three reasons why that's a bad idea. One is they have no statutory authority to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, two, it implies that if NASA hasn't certified your space station, that your space station is not safe, right? Mm -hmm. So it puts you, it puts puts the people who aren't, you know, working with NASA, they're just developing commercial spaces for commercial purposes, puts them at a competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third is that getting back to 
are precious astronauts. It implies that somehow NASA astronauts have to be safer than just people going up for fun or to do research hmm. on their own that has nothing to do with NASA. Okay. It's just bad, it's just bad hmm. optics. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it seems kind of silly if you were to go to the point of, uh, say, the station has artificial gravity to make it human rated. They're telling you, you need this kind of mattress. Right? Where does it end to make it to make it human rated around those corners so that uh, nobody gets bumped? Right. Child proof it. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems it seems a bit silly after a point. OK, so it, who would ultimately have a responsibility for coming up with a building code? I mean, we obviously need the operators in there. Um, governments are responsible for the activities of their citizens, so they probably should be involved in some way. Well, you know, NIST does that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, I, it should be done the way it's been done in other industries. You have mm -hmm. you have ANSI and you have ASTM and you have NIST and and industry should be working with those entities. Okay. Um, we have the space, you know, the Space Infrastructure Foundation. Fred Slane. I don't know if you've ever, if you know mm -hmm. Fred, but he's he's in Colorado mm -hmm. Springs. Okay. Uh, he's he's the head of that, and he's also now. Uh, the, the ANSI representative uh, for space. Uh, so, you know, you, you get those people together and also in combination, to, you're, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the uh, Cislunar Ecosystem Task Force, mm -hmm. which AIAA mm -hmm. just started mm -hmm. this year, which is trying to kind of pull all this stuff together and uh, integrate it to make you know, coming up and coming up with standards is one of those things. So, but it should be industry led and it can take input from NASA and NASA probably, mm -hmm. they've learned some stuff from ISS. Sure. So, you know, we'll listen to them, but it, it should really be an industry led effort, um, you know, working with NIST and working with the department of commerce. Okay. How long does that take? And does it slow down companies getting facilities into orbit? Um, potentially. I mean that's that's yeah. one of the other that's the other concern of NASA certifying it slowed us down, you know, mm -hmm. getting getting commercial crew going, right? And there's there's certainly a legitimate concern that's going to slow down uh, if NASA is doing certifications. It's going to slow that down. Um, mm. So again, the, I guess the question is what risk versus reward are we willing? What are we willing to do in the near term? Uh, how much risk are we willing to take in the near term mm. till? these standards get developed and and it's an ongoing process mm -hmm. right there's you know it's even on Doesn't the industrial standard yeah. it's a it's a never ending yeah. thing they come up with new codes all the time yeah right as as technology evolves yeah we get new yeah in building we get new materials uh, we discover stuff that we thought in 1950 was really good for insulating a house uh, it doesn't quite work or it makes it moldy or you know right. the water yeah, gets or, in somehow after a while you know, uh, or you know, you know, we don't have, don't have to solder copper anymore. Now right. we have other other right. means of of running plumbing, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> other other ways of doing electrical, you know, using more modern technology. So so whatever you come up with is going to evolve. But you you know, you come up with some basic things. It says yeah. here's here's what kind of uh, margins you should have, structural margin, you know, as a function of mm -hmm. what your what your atmospheric pressure is. You know, you might you might have standards for well, you ought to have a minimum of Eight psi, or, or you know, you know, ten thousand feet equivalent, or something. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you ought to have you know, minimum oxygen, partial pressure, you know, for fire safety, those, those kinds of things. Yeah, I would hope there was some pressure vessel knowledge that could be transformed uh, over to this. Uh, you don't have pressure pushing in the way that we do in atmosphere, but uh, yeah. I, I imagine, you know, there's certainly pressure pushing out and the and metal has to be Certainly positive pressure is a lot easier than as we saw with uh, the recent incident with the Titanic. Yeah, the submarine, uh, right. Yeah, you know, take it, negative pressure is tough to deal mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. It's a you know pressure vessels are easy if it's if it's a balloon. Yeah. So once again, it goes back to risk tolerance and what we're willing to accept to get to where we want to go. It's an ongoing thing, so the work is never going to be done, but we have to come up with something. Um, it should involve industry stakeholders. I, just from my own experience, I'm feeling like the four or five or ten people in the room. I wouldn't make it much more than that. Uh, really, have got to be the right people for the first draft. Otherwise it's going to take forever, right? If we get people who are a little too nitpicky uh, or just obstinate because they enjoy being a force in somebody else's way to uh, appease their own ego, gosh, we would never see anything like that, would we? Um, <laughs> they would really slow the process down. So if you could get some people who know each other or at least respect each other uh, to work together on this thing, they might be able to get something together in six months, um, I would hope. I wonder if there's a potential of using uh, AI to go through existing codes and pull data or, or talking points basically that are could be relevant, right? And then uh, have a faster starting point from that. Maybe. Something that strikes me right now, yeah. As long as, as, long as it doesn't hallucinate them. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's got to be a, low, a lot of double checking to make sure. Okay. So... Is this happening already? There's there's some discussion, like you said, with the the AIAA, um, in for at least this lunar space. What about building code for everywhere else? Well, I think there's some, be some basic things that are applicable universally, mm -hmm. literally, you know, universally. Mm -hmm. um, it's in Leo. Uh, you don't have to worry as much about radiation. Yeah particularly if you're equatorial, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But uh, so so it's it's things are less stringent for Leo that once you get out beyond the belts yeah. and Allen belts, then you have to start then, then you have to start worrying more about, about the radiation concern. But other than that, I don't think things change a heck of a lot. Okay. And of course it'll be different if you're if you have artificial gravity or not. Yeah. I guess, I guess we should talk to Rhonda Stevenson, somebody like above space, somebody who's actually manufacturing these things, you yeah. know, to see that would be a good question. Where, you know, where are we starting? Or on this? Yeah. When, uh, when this episode comes out, I think I'll tag her. <laughs> see what she has to say. Uh, if she has time to look. So, okay. We've got this very interesting thing coming up. Um, We've all we've all heard about space junk and space situational awareness. Uh, the first book that I put out is on space situational awareness. I have a, a business of space book coming and a space law book coming after that. And I could probably do two books on each of those uh, from the interviews that we've done here and everything that I've learned by talking to folks like yourself, right, who have been there and, and done the job. Um, and 
I was sad when Celestrack lost their funding and you couldn't go to the site anymore and see all the orbital pathing, but there's been something I just found out about the last week. Uh, I think it's spaceaware.io, which basically looks like a Celestrack clone. It has the same animation. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was able to share that with some people locally who were interested in, uh, what are these dots going across the sky? And half of them knew it was Starlink and half of them probably don't know that NASA is still operating. right? <laughs> you know? uh, and so to share that with them, uh, that space aware uh, thing, I'll put it in the notes, um, was really a pleasure. And so you get to see how many satellites are actually up there. And of course it's not to scale. A dot up there is not uh, the size of the satellite. It would be much, much tinier. Um, but we do have more uh, launches, a lot more small sats going up there. And there's going to be an area that you've identified, and, and I'm sure you're not, you know, you, you're not going to claim to be the only person, um, but you are highlighting a uh, discussion about this. And I was like, hmm, I really haven't thought about this. I've thought about the space situational awareness problem, right? And, the, you know, so we're talking about the you're launching a lot more satellites. We have to identify, track, and predict the orbit of all these things to avoid something else crashing into them, right? Or are they crashing into something else? And so there's one unique orbit that is going to become super, super important, and that's equatorial low Earth orbit, right around the orbit. And this is what you've identified and brought up in our chat last week. And so... Tell us a little bit about why this orbit is unique, why it's such a big deal, and what, in terms of clutter, is going to happen in this relatively narrow band of space around the Earth. Well, okay, it, it's a unique orbit, as you said. Uh, it's the only zero-degree inclination orbit. Every other, any other, every other inclination has an infinite number of orbits because. Mm -hmm. You can have any number of orbit planes with different ascending nodes, the place where the orbit crosses the equator. Hmm. Uh, but equatorial doesn't cross the equator, it just lives on the equator. So it's like it's the there's only one orbit plane that's got that's got the zero degree inclination. Hmm. Um, so what does that mean? It means um, there are no launch windows to get into it. Anytime you launch, you're in that orbit. Hmm. If you want to do a single orbit rendezvous, you get an opportunity to do that every hour and a half. Um, it's very nice. It's it's also the lowest radiation environment because it doesn't go through the South Atlantic anomaly. It it, uh, it minimizes the, the the risk of something falling out of it onto somebody on the planet because it doesn't cover much of it. It only goes mm -hmm. around the equator. You know, the only thing it could fall on is, is you know, somebody who lives on, on the equator. Uh, but in, it's nice, it would be nice to get as much as possible much go, as, into a single orbit plane because now you don't have mm -hmm. all these different, different planes, different things coming in at different velocities from all kinds of different angles. Mm -hmm. Everything is just very low relative velocity. It's very easy to manage traffic. If it's in a single plane, now of course the issue is a lot of things can't be in equatorial. They don't can't do that. You can't do your job as first observation. You know, mm -hmm. if you're in the equator, all you're going to see is the equator. Uh, you can't uh, you know, do communications. You can't do the kinds of things that Starlink is doing. So there are there's always, always going to be a need to be in other inclinations. But anything that doesn't need to be in other inclinations ought to be in that orbit. It should be I call it Earth's natural harbor. 
everything going to or from space should pass through that orbital plane. So the, all the other advantages, you get maximum advantage of Earth rotation. So it's the place you can get the most payload to mm. with any given rocket. Uh, in fact, if you know if you ever do want to get do single stage to orbit, that's where you want to do it because single stage. The big problem with single stage to orbit is that its off nominal performance just sucks. You know, if you need to go to a higher altitude or a higher inclination, your payload drops off precipitously because you know you it's you, you have so much more mass. Hmm. You have to move that the whole rocket uh, has to go to go to that higher inclination or altitude. So, so you really want to minimize the delta V you need to get to orbit, and and equatorial does that. So put it up there first, and then get a momentous yeah. orbit yeah. mover or something to fly over okay. and push you so, up higher. Okay. Yeah, and, and and that's the objective. Oh well, it costs. You know, it's so expensive to do plane change in Leo, in terms of delta V. Well, the answer is yeah, it is. But if if you got a, a starship situation. Mm -hmm. where you have basically you know we're going to get get out of this situation where launch is oh you go into this orbit plane with with this rocket you deliver the payload and and you know you have a launch window and maybe you have to worry about weather oh you don't have to worry about, about weather at the, at the equator either by the way uh, mm -hmm. no hurricanes there because they can't they can't cross it they, they don't just don't don't even come very near it um so, but the traditional model for the last 60 years has been, you know, you, you have a payload that's going to go to a certain location, you put it on a rocket and it goes there. And okay, so for example, you, we send the cargo to ISS on a Falcon 9, cost 60 million bucks for 20 tons, something like that, right? So somebody would say, well, okay, so I can't, if I want to get to ISS, I don't want to go to the equator because then I have to do a 52 degree plane change to get to ISS and that, you know, how much that that's going to cost. You know, it's almost as much delta V as it is to get to orbit, right? Okay, but suppose I've got propellant on orbit for mm -hmm. 20 bucks a pound. Okay, so if, with a, you, you can run numbers and say, okay, with a, with a cryo stage, uh, I can get to that 52 degree plane change with $5 million worth of propellant, mm. which is a hell of a lot cheaper than buying a Falcon launch. Yeah. So our commodities market opens up. Guys like Daniel Faber are happy. <laughs> the one's yeah. putting the gas stations into space and there's a yeah, very fact, clear fact, financial yeah. application, right? Uh, to doing this. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Given... Sorry, sorry about the noise here. Phone's ringing. Okay. Zoom did a good job of screening that out. Yeah. Oh, um, so we... You know, we've I've had a lot of discussion about space tracking and and infrastructure on this show with folks like Maury Baja and uh, T. S. Kelso, um, other guys who who have PhDs, right, and and have been highly involved in this stuff. Um, the the state of that technology is kind of old, duct taped together. It could use a lot of improvement, and also we don't put transponders on things the way we do with aircraft, so it's hard to tell. Who's what, where? Um, and now we're talking about throwing a heck of a lot more items into one orbit. And like you say, the plane is the same. Um, so they're all, you know, in terms of three-dimensional cannonballs or whatever, they're they're moving fine in that one direction, but there's two other things that they're doing. Um, what infrastructure changes would you would you think that would be needed in order to handle this increase in capacity that we need? Well, 
as I was saying, you know, we're going to get out of this model where we, where you launch to a particular, a, a rocket to a particular location. Instead, mm. think of it if you have starships, maybe, and, and the big, the disadvantage of equatorial, which I should mention, it's, it's great for all the reasons I just said. The big disadvantage is you have to launch from the equator, and we don't have any equatorial spaceports. Well, okay, so, okay. So, so, hmm. uh, but people like, you know, Tom Murata, or, or they want to build, he wants to build, you know, floating platforms. Okay. And then Elon's hmm. talked about that for Starship as well, because partly because he wants some outside cities so he can do point to point, right? Uh, so if you've got a floating platform, you can put it at the equator. In fact, you can hmm. have, have another one downrange where you could land your booster. And, and get even more payload, probably, you know, 10, 20% increase in payload if you don't don't have to fly back or don't have to boost back. And so you can land on the platform downrange, it can refuel there and it can self-ferry back to the mm -hmm. to the other one, right? And you might even have a bunch of them, you know, you can just kind of hop around the, the, the entire equator. But, yeah. but basically, so we're going from a model where we have a specific uh, rock you know payload on a specific rock to a specific place to just basically just a mass pipeline daily scheduled flights mm -hmm. uh, into orbit so it's like the transcontinental railroad mm -hmm. of space so, okay so now you just now so now you're not going to say oh i'm going to build this satellite and, and put it on this rock you're going to say uh i'm going to i'm going to put up a bunch i'm going to have propellant up there i'm going to have building materials up there mm -hmm. i'm going to have assembly facilities up there uh, so everything is going to want to be in that orbit. You're going to have have resorts, space resorts, uh, for people who don't care whether they see the planet or not, but they're just they're just up there doing stuff in space. Uh, be a, a way station. Sorry, I got a cat <laughs> going crazy. Sorry. Here. Um, uh, so it might be a place where you stop, you, you stay, you know, before you get your shuttle to the moon or, or somewhere else. Uh, but again, I say every everything would be passing through that orbit, either yeah. either departing or coming back from okay. from system inner space and beyond. I was surprised there there haven't been uh, any equatorial spaceports. I, I know there's launch sites like French Equatorial Africa. Um, well, they occasionally uh, do it, but is, yeah, you know, Alcantara is close to the equator. Hmm. I'm like, have they avoided putting money into building it out because it's not. It's not our country. It's not local. Uh, yeah, we're the yeah, U.S. isn't going to invest in a yeah. spaceport. Yeah, and, and you know, mm -hmm. Peru is not far from the equator. Hmm. That's why they chose it because they saw the primary market as geo, and then you don't have to do a plane change mm -hmm. you know, if you're if you're equatorial. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the other thing. It's it's very accessible to geo because you don't have to do any plane change. You get to geo, you just have mm -hmm. to change your altitude. Hmm. Okay, but is I, there I just a... think of it as like I say, it's Earth Natural Harbor. Everything is going to be happening. That's where all the action is going to be. Yeah. Anything I, that needs to be in a different inclination, you'll you'll put it there. Do you think and it's likely people... somebody going up? Sorry, uh, somebody going up to a space resort will be able to look out a window and see an orbital construction facility, at least if they flew by it. Um, well, you're not so going to fly by because everything's going around close. like beads yeah. on a string. You know. So you your your relative motion keeps you the yeah. same distance away yeah. okay yeah but hmm. which is a good thing yeah right <laughs> it helps avoid those collisions we talked about yeah but, but, but things do want to <laughs> things will want to be close together i mean oh. 
it might be that the people people who are working on that uh, those assembly hangars don't live there mm. you know mm -hmm. so so they'll just do a little orbit phase to get back to the room at night uh so they could stay at the same hotel as, as yeah. the as the, the partiers and and the people who are you know on their huh. way somewhere else so yeah it, it would be probably could be yeah close vision bring back today's video log of what happened yeah. and show it there hmm. And there'd be tele and there'd be telescopes, you know. Yeah, so, that's true. You know, no atmosphere to look through. So you know, if it's even if it's you know fifty clicks away, you could probably have a pretty good view of it. Hmm. Okay, that's kind of neat. Yeah, or they could they could take that image and project it onto a big screen so that people could watch it without peering through something. Huh. I like it. I like it. It's going somewhere. Uh, is there a maximum number of resident space objects uh, that could fit into this orbit? Probably, but yeah, just I'm physically sure it's pretty big. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I would imagine. And it depends on the size too. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, what about a good place? A good place to assemble solar power satellites. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Beaming that back to Earth, uh, or using it up there. Okay. What about oh. radio radio spectrum? Would that fill up even faster than any sort of physical constraint that we have? Do we have enough room no, bandwidth I, to communicate? I, I think people be using lasers. Okay, and just signaling, dot dot yeah. dash, <laughs> whatever would be interesting. Well, it'd okay. be it'd be digital. Yeah. Okay. Will this have any impact on launch? Having all those that that clutter up there, um, would that slow things down, or you'd have to wait for a window? Or are you, are you talking about equatorial? Yeah. No. No. Okay. No. It's, it's always going to be open. It's, it's all, yeah. But like I say, there's there is no no launch window to get into orbit into that orbit. Yeah. It's, okay. it's only it's only if you want to be in a certain place in the orbit. If you want to rendezvous with something, hmm. then you get then you have to wait at most an hour and a half. Yeah. Oh, yeah, every, it's not long. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. huh. everything comes that's about the orbital period, right? So yeah. every time something comes around like that, you can have a, have a shot at rendezvousing with it. All right. Well, Rand, I, I appreciate you doing this. It's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, you brought up a few topics that I really hadn't explored in my head or even thought of at all in the building codes case. That was very interesting. Um, we, we'll, we'll all check out the book. Uh, it's on Amazon. I'll link to it in the description below. Who do you want to talk to? Who do you want to meet? Hey, I thought about it. Never talked ah, okay. about I've I've met a lot of people, you know. Yeah. I do know I know a lot. Well, of you people, reached out to so, me, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, gee, like, uh, nothing nothing jumps to mind. Okay. I've, Are there any areas in in space industry discussions that you want to have a voice in? Well, I want I want to make something happen with this this building code thing. Mm -hmm. That's that's okay. what I've been trying to do is, and I've been talking to Axiom and Orbital. Mm -hmm. And and Rhonda and other people, yeah. um, trying to coalesce some kind of industry organization, some kind of something equivalent to the Commercial Space Flight Federation, hmm. but but that but CSF can't really do this because I don't think that Karina has you know the bandwidth or the resources to deal with it, and she would have to get consensus from yeah. everybody. So it really That's needs, the hard might part. Need a, <laughs> might need a new 
a new thing like that, except mm -hmm. I would call it something like the Commercial Orbital um, Federation. Commercial Orbital Federation. And we would have something like the, like the Comstack, you know, we'd have the Commercial Orbital Advisory mm -hmm. Committee. Right. Okay. Um, if somebody does want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Email. Email. Okay. Um, Simberg, we'll just... Yeah. Simberg at interglobal.org. Great. Uh, All right, Rand. Is there anything we didn't discuss that you wanted to cover? Or have we covered what? Um, probably. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. But well, I can't think just... of it right now. Yeah. So. But you can always come back and have another discussion. Thanks for doing this. Good time. All right. So, really interesting discussion there on building codes for orbital cislunar BEO facilities, uh, the uniqueness and benefits of equatorial LEO, and uh, Rand's book, Safe is Not an Option. Uh, I'm going to link to that in the description below on Amazon if you want to go check that out. So, Rand, thanks for doing this. It was really uh, educational and I had fun. So, if you are a space or defense business owner and you've got a to-do list uh, as long as your arm and you're feeling like you just can't get any help with it uh, and all your employees are full, come and talk to us at Cold Star Tech. There'll be a link to that in the description as well. Book a time to talk with me and tell me about the kinds of problems that you're experiencing. I want to hear about them and uh, I want to help you solve them. Not just do an analysis and give you a report and run off, right? I'm talking about getting in the trenches and actually doing the work, which is what we do, to help you and your company be better. Thanks for listening.